Thank you, guys. I know you'd rather have them out here more, right? I get that. <laughs> um, if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you go to Luke chapter 15? We're going to talk about that very thing that they just sang about. If you have it, maybe electronically or hard copy, or you can, uh, if you're at home, maybe get your Bible out right now. And, and if you didn't get the notes this morning, you're especially going to want those. They're on the table back there, maybe when you came in, or download them if you're watching from home. So Luke chapter 15. Before I forget to tell you guys, and I'm going to try and remember to tell you at the end of the service too, there's a tent out in the parking lot after the service that has donuts and warm cider in it. That'll be great, won't it? And so you can go out there, take your mask off, enjoy seeing each other, and maybe recognize people you didn't recognize because the mask has been covering their face. And enjoy that in the tent out there in the parking lot after the service. So Luke chapter 15, and we're going to catch up with where we were at last week. This is part two to the prodigal son. I think it would be really helpful for you if you weren't part of that last week to maybe this week go back, catch it on YouTube or on the New Hope website or on Facebook, and you'll be able to see the pieces that build up to this puzzle, but I'm gonna do my best to catch you up this morning. Here's a side note for you just from my perspective. Perhaps the most striking thing to me as I've been working over this for the, I'm gonna say the last month, is this remarkable detail that I'm noticing in what Jesus is doing here, buried within all the fascinating nuances of this most famous of all the parables, is this reality. Like all the parables, Jesus is telling these off the top of his head. And I'm personally marveling to realize just how smart Jesus is. I know he's God. I don't have to be reminded of that. He's God in the flesh, but it's scary to me just how smart he is, and I'm going to show you what I'm talking about this morning. I'm uh, going to pray with you, and I would love to jump into this, but let's just go to the Father first and ask him to guide us as we work through this. Would you do that with me? Father, I pray on behalf of everybody who's watching online right now and everybody who's present in the auditorium. Our hearts are prepared because of the music we've worked through, Lord. Uh, but we come to this place where we obviously are recognizing we could be easily distracted. There could, there could be things that have happened in our life in the last few days, maybe even this morning, that could take us away from the attention we're supposed to give this. So, Father, I, I pray that you would focus us. Speak to us now through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would do that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Last week, we began with a request, a request on my part. I was asking you to identify, perhaps, if there's someone or something in your life whom you despise. I know it's an unusual way to start out, but that's the focus of this parable. Jesus has before him individuals who despise other people. And he's telling this parable for a very specific reason because of their attitude. He wants them to understand his perspective towards people. So I need to give you a little bit of background about what's going on here as you're thinking of maybe who that person is. Maybe you've been praying for a person over this last week whom you had previously despised. It's hard to be angry at somebody and pray for them at the same time. Here's the background. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He'd been with the Pharisees. He'd been at a dinner with the Pharisees. 
He left that setting, and he's working his way down to Jerusalem. He's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's stopping in villages along the way. He stops in one particular area, and he sits down with some individuals. It's only months before he's crucified, and the individuals who are coming to him now are not Pharisees, but they're tax collectors. The Bible says they're tax collectors and sinners in verse 1 of chapter 15. And the the Pharisees are watching this, and they're mortified that Jesus would be eating with them, and they begin grumbling against Jesus. What is He doing eating with those people? So Jesus begins telling story after story after story about how God pursues those who are lost. Now, where we broke off last week midstream is in the midst of this parable of the prodigal, and he's gathering up all these things, and he's running away from his family. And that's where we pick it up in Luke 15, verse 13. We'll just refresh you quickly on what we looked at. It says this in verse 13, and not many days later, the young son, younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, literally trying to turn the family estate into cash. And his mindset is, I'm cashing out of this thing. So he's got a pile of money. He's got a lot of places to go and see and he wastes his inheritance with reckless living. So verse 13 finishes this way, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. That's the very word prodigal. It's where we get it from. Prodigal means to squander, to waste, to scatter it out there. And that's exactly what he's done. His brother went on to say in verse 30, he's wasted all his money with prostitutes. He lowered himself. He's trashing his life. If you've been in the position where you watched someone who's trapped in this endless cycle of ungodly decisions, it appears that they're selling themselves cheap, and many people do that. They sell themselves cheap. All the good things that God meant for their future are sold in a fire cell, and it's excruciating to watch. Now, he's gone for life in a distant country, and life in a distant country is rarely what we hope for. If you've been there, you know. You know that it rarely promises and meets what it promises. As soon the money is gone and he's broke and he's destitute of any money. And when you experience failure on a personal level, especially when you lose things like your career or your money, self-respect many times goes with it. That's exactly what's happening here with him. Go with me to verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. We know that trauma brings desperation. We've experienced trauma in our nation in the last number of months. Trauma brings a sense of desperation. Trauma will do that to you. But this young man, even though he's going through trauma, he's not ready to go home. He's not yet fully humbled. And we know that because he'd rather work for a stranger than work for his father. It says this in verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So he's got these dual disasters going on. He's running out of money. He's run right head straight into a famine. But God is always at work, right, church? God's always at work. He works even in the midst of trauma, and he works in the midst of trauma to draw people to himself. So we got a young man here who's financially bankrupt, and he's spiritually bankrupt, and he's walking the streets, and he decides to attach himself to a pig farmer. And he's fattening pigs while he starves. 
and he's fallen as far as he possibly can. He's not only trying to survive in a Gentile land, now he's attached himself to a pig farmer and he wants their food. And if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that Jews don't associate with swine. They consider pigs to be unclean. Not only won't eat it, they won't raise them, won't touch them, want nothing to do with them. And we find this young man living with the pigs. In the culture of the first century, he's disgraced himself. He's disgraced himself to this level. He scorned his father, and you can't be worse than to scorn your father. And he's filled with materialism, and he sells the family estate to a loan shark, and he runs to a distant land so that no one knows you and no one cares what you do because you're in a distant land and you can get away with what you want to get away with. And he begins living like a bottom feeder. And to his family and to his village and whatever friends he might have had in the past, he's dead. He's gone. In the Jewish world, he's been cut off. So from this place of wonderful provision underneath his father, he's come to this. He's completely destitute, and every time he performs his duties as a pig farmer, he's moving further and further and further away from the God that he once knew. So he's really gone. And verse 16 ends by saying, and nobody gave him anything. So now he's starving to death. And if you've been in that place, if you've been in that kind of a pit of despair, you can identify with him this morning. You know what it is to be completely cut off and be looking for a lifeline, and that's where his mind goes. At its core, sin is running from God. Sin is doing whatever you can to erase God from your mind, and it always ends the exact same way. You're facing death. You know, we can't begin to fathom the horror of what the Pharisees are going through right now as they're listening to Jesus tell this story. For them and their first century world, it's absolutely mortifying to think of this young man who's a good Jewish boy who's been raised this way and he's moved so far away. This is a vivid picture of the ultimate sinner and Jesus intends it that way. He not only rejected his father, he sold off his family and he's living like a bottom feeder and Jesus is painting the picture of the person who is the ultimate sinner and he's eating with them. This is the whole purpose of the story. He wants them to get this. This is what the tax collectors are. This is what the sinners are. Now, Jesus dives back into the story, verse 17. Let's go back with him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, remember, this is his rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son Make me as one of your hired men. I pondered over the last couple of weeks, I wonder how many times he rehearsed that speech in his mind as he's making his way back home. I'm not worthy. My father's generous. I'll go to my father. And he rehearses over and over again, Father, this is what I've done. This is who I am. I recognize it. Make me like one of your hired men. His perspective has changed. My father is generous. His workers have more than enough. So for the Pharisees listening to Jesus tell this story, they're thinking, finally, finally he's come to his senses. Finally, he's getting his act together. He'll come back, he'll make restitution, and everything will be balanced. Bear with me down on Luke 15, verse 19. 
I know you just looked at it. Look at it with me again. Look on the screen. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Remember what we looked at last week. In, in the mind of his community, he's dead. He's completely gone. In the mind of his village and his family, he's, he, he's been shut off. That's, that's the expectation. This is an honor-shame culture. Let me elaborate here. He's embarrassed the family. He's embarrassed the village. And in an honor-shame culture, he hasn't just brought shame on himself. He's brought it on the entire community. So his mindset is, please give me a job. Over the many years, I'm willing to work. I'm willing to do whatever. I will get down on my knees. Make me like one of the hired men. I will labor. I will toil. I have no privileges whatsoever. I recognize that. Don't even consider me a son. Make me like one of your hired men. We've said many times here at New Hope that the word repent means to turn and go in the opposite direction. You're going one direction, and you literally do a 180 and go in the opposite direction. Jesus is using the imagery here. He came to himself, meaning this guy is facing who he really is, and that's the result of true repentance. And you know it's legitimate because he's saying, it's my sin. He's not making any excuses. He completely owns it and says, this is what I've done. How did he get to that place? Last week, I pointed you to Romans chapter 2. I'm just going to take you back there real quickly again. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The pain of personal trauma will help you see God more accurately. Perhaps you've been there. The pain of personal trauma helps him see his father more accurately. He's gone through this trauma, and he comes to the realization, my father's workers have more than enough. They've got everything that they need. My father's generous. Maybe if I go back to him. See, it's the kindness of God that brings him hope. My father is good. You've seen the progression here. He recognizes, first and foremost, his sin is against God, and at the same time, he's recognizing, I've lost all claims to be a son now, the Pharisees did not like the story at all in the beginning, mortified, horrified that this young man would abandon his family and run from them. They're appalled when he ends up feeding pigs. But here, at this point, <laughs> they're applauding. They're like, yes, yes, there'll be shame. Yes, he'll be scorned. That's right. That's exactly what he has to do. He has to go back and begin the process of restoration. See, in the mind of the Middle East, the, the reconciliation is not possible instantly. There is no such thing as instant reconciliation of a breached relationship. That's not how it's done. This young man is truly remorseful, and he truly regrets what he's done. But he's going to have to earn his way back, and he has years of restitution ahead of him. That's the understanding in the theology of the first century person who's living at this time, the theology of the Pharisees especially, which was go back, confess, repent. You'll be humiliated in the community. You'll be scorned. You'll be shamed. 
And that's fair and that's right because of what he's done to his father. See, it's very severe to live in an honor-shame culture. And these are the people whom Jesus is speaking to. He knows their world. So in their mind, he'll come to the Father. He'll say, I'll take my punishment. I'll endure the humiliation. I'll work my way back. Please make me like a hired man. Just bring, bring me back. And everyone, especially the Pharisees, would get it because that's the way it's done. And that is the exact same mindset of people living in this world today. Every single world religion thinks that way except biblical Christianity. Every single world religion thinks, I can earn my way back. Now keep that thought in mind and go into verse 20. Watch where Jesus takes this. Verse 20, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop right there. I said earlier that Jesus is scary smart. I want you to know why I said that. I want you to see what's going on here. Remember, Jesus didn't learn this story from anyone else. No one has told this parable before. No one has known this. Jesus is telling this off the top of his head. Because God knows his audience, and he knew that you would be looking at this 2,000 God has stopped the young man. Now, I want you to follow this. I promise you, you have friends who need to know this because they're completely mistaken about their view of God. In all the categories of human emotion, the emotion that brings the most agony to you and I, the one that is the most painful is the heartbreak of rejection. And the greater the love, the greater the pain. When someone rejects, we carry that weight with us to such a degree that it wounds us deeply. And when we carry those wounds when others do us wrong, our natural inclination is to look for payback. And so we begin despising, and we build up resentment, and we develop an attitude. So because we respond that way, we naturally think God responds that way. Our mindset is that because we go there and despise someone for something they did to us, that must be how God responds. And Jesus is making it very plain here. The very thing that everybody in humanity wants to know when they look at this story, and this is the most famous story of all of them, they look at the Father and they want to know, what is this Father going to do with this one who has gone so far away from the family that he's in a distant land? How is this Father going to respond? Remember in the picture, Jesus has painted him as the worst of all the sinners. And to a Pharisee, the answer is very simple. Well, he's got years of restitution. He's got to toil. He's got to labor to work his way back. And that's the typical mindset. I'll earn it. I'm going to get into heaven by doing good things. I know I've done a lot of bad things, 
and I think I can earn my way back. I'll do enough good things to get in God's graces. Maybe I can balance the scales in my favor. So we've got a dad on a porch who's looking, and he knows that pain we just talked about. A father who's felt the pain of rejection. The greatest agony of all the pains is when we're rejected, rejected love. So we have a father filled with that emotion, but Jesus says he's also filled with another emotion, the emotion of compassion. Splagnizomai, I told you, big, big Greek word, meaning his gut aches for his son. With that in mind, look at what Jesus says in verse 20 very closely, four words, and he ran and ran and embraced him. I told you last week, literally running in the, in the Greek text means he was sprinting, not a jog, but racing like they do in the stadium when they're competing for a race. This is an all-out, flat-out, give it all you have, run as fast as you can. The word is dramon. But what you need to know is that in the Middle East, noblemen don't run, especially towards rebellious sons. It would expose their legs. It was forbidden for them to expose their ankles. When the priest went to the temple to make sacrifices, their robes dragged on the ground, and they were forbidden from lifting their robes even if they got into the blood of the sacrifices because it would expose them. It's a shameful thing in the Middle East for a nobleman and let alone a priest to let his legs be seen. In the first century, the robe was associated with honor. The outer robe especially is connected to dignity, and you would never expose yourself and it actually had a name. The outer robe had a name which was in the Hebrew language meant that which brings me honor. And so when a man put on his robe, his outer robe, he walked with dignity, his shoulders back and upright, and all the community knew this is someone to be revered. For an older Jewish man to be running in public is humiliating. Now, the normal expectation from a father in the setting with this son would be that he would not make himself available to his son. He's been dishonored by a rebellious, shameful son. He's not going to bring himself into the presence of this one. The family reputation has been stained in the community. And if by some amazing grace, this father would receive him and hear him out, it would be only to stipulate what the work was that he was going to do. It would be to stipulate how many years he'd have to toil. And if he did carry out every single detail that the father stipulated, then and only then could he be reconciled and brought back in. And all the rabbis taught this. And everyone knew it's the way it's done. So we get this astounding contrast from Jesus. When he says he not only ran, he embraced him. It's another Greek word you're going to see come up on the screen. This word embrace, you're not getting the sense of it in the English language. When it says fall into or fall upon, it means he's squeezing him so hard, he's hugging him on the neck and squeezing him and kissing his neck. I have friends from the South, they use that language. Come here, let me kiss your neck. In our culture, it sounds kind of creepy, like, eh, stay back, man. In their world, no. This is how a father receives his son 
So in this story, Jesus is telling us God can't get there fast enough, and not only does he run to him, he doesn't even allow him to finish his speech. He forgives him and and tells him, the servants now, the servants are going to scurry, and they're going to serve you, because this father wants to celebrate immediately. Now, I'm struck by the knowledge that you cannot raise pigs in the first century and not get a degree of aroma on you. In other words, that's code for he's got pig manure on him. So when this father runs and embraces him, he shows up in the clothes of a beggar. And his cologne is not Armani and it's not Gucci. And it's not even the essence of bacon. It's pig manure. That's what he's been doing. And yet, as dirty and smelly and ragged as he is, Daddy is hugging and kissing on his neck. Now, to finish this imagery, in order to go forward and wrap this story up, we need to just hang one more moment. I want you to look at the end of his prepared speech. Look with me on the screen closely. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And Jesus cuts him off there. Something is missing from his rehearsed speech. What's missing? Make me like one of your hired servants. Let me work for you. I told you Jesus is terrifyingly smart. I've been humbled to a greater degree in the last two weeks by seeing this reality. God the Son is telling the Pharisees who are hanging on his every word in response to their disgust over the people that they despise, in response to their attitude, the tax collectors and sinners of the people that Jesus is eating with, when he comes to the part of repeating the son's rehearsed speech, make me like one of your servants. God leaves that out intentionally. He's just telling this off the top of his head. He doesn't allow for this young man in the story to repeat those words and cuts him off. How do I understand that? You understand it this way. There is no need for you to work to earn the forgiveness of God. Do you believe that? Like 10 of you do. If you believe it, say amen. amen. You don't have to work for it. That's why it's called grace, and it's amazing. And somebody should write a song about it. It's astounding. Are you catching what Jesus is laying down here? He's intentionally cut him off in the story. That's how you understand that, because he's already been forgiven by coming home, by coming home and confessing he's received as a son. He's repenting. And he's not working for it. That's all any of us ever have to do. That's all any of us have to do is come and trust God, and he will forgive, and he will restore. Do you feel distant from God this morning? Look really closely at this image then. You want to see, you want to know how ready he is to forgive without any judgment whatsoever? You look closely at this image that God is not a reluctant Savior. He's the one who's running to the people who need the forgiveness. He's the God who hugs. He's the God who embraces. 
And even though you might be covered in the dirt of your life decisions, and you might be dragging a lot of baggage behind you, if you are repentant, he's ready. He's ready to forgive. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and a sandal on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again and he was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. And herein is Jesus' response to the derision and the scorn of the Pharisees. If they didn't get it before, they're getting it now. If God is the one who's being pictured in this story as the Father, the Father is saying that which was dead is a metaphor for that which was separated from the family is that same one who's alive. He's been restored to the family, meaning he's been saved. So in response, what does the Father do? He swiftly sends his servants out. Now, in most first-century households, there was only one robe that was considered the best robe. We see this father say, go get the best robe. The best robe was the one that was ornately embroidered. The stitching on it was remarkable. Everyone knew that when the patriarch, the leader of the family, put on that robe, that was his robe of dignity. It was considered the best robe. I want you to see the Greek word that's used here. It's the word stole. You see it up on the screen. It's called a long-fitting gown. It's a mark of dignity. We're told that when you and I step into eternity, that we will be dressed in a white robe. It's called a stole in the book of Revelation. The exact same word that's used here. When you're dressed in that white robe one day, church, will you be dressed in the robe because of your righteousness or because of the righteousness that Jesus put on you? Well, clearly, it's his righteousness. It's not our righteousness. Our righteousness is a filthy rag, Scripture says. So we're dressed in his robe. Jesus is projecting out in the midst of the story of the prodigal son What happens in your world that he sees you as dressed in his righteousness? The best robe. What is the best robe? The best robe is the father's robe, the robe that God the father says to this son who's the prodigal, put on my robe on him, my dignity, my honor. And we're told he gets a ring and he gets shoes and he gets a fatted calf. And what's the ring? The the ring signified the authority of the family. If you had the ring of the family, you could make deals on behalf of the family. In destitution in the distant land, that son's going barefoot. Only slaves were barefoot. They were the beggars. They couldn't afford shoes. But he comes back and his father puts shoes on him. Shoes are the mark of a free man. And the calf, meat was not usually eaten at every meal. The prized animal was only kept for special occasions, especially for wedding celebrations of the firstborn son. And we have this father sacrificing the calf for the secondborn son. This is such a contrast in imagery here from the Old Testament law to the New Testament grace. Now, Jesus adds another element to the story to wrap it up. 
Go with me to the last couple of verses, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus finishes this parable with the older brother's reaction because he wants you to see his concern for even the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the leader of the nations. They're the ones who are supposed to be watching out for the poor. They're supposed to be having the compassion for people who are far from God. They definitely have not been showing the love of God. So the older brother is introduced, and he's intended to be a clear representation of the Pharisees and the scribes. So we've got the older son. He's out in the field working, and he wonders, what's going on? He's puzzled. He, he hears music and the sound of dancing. And as he approaches the house, I smell steak. What's going on? And so his attitude is heightened and brightened, and he summons a servant. Now, this older brother, he has worthy qualities. He's a hard worker. He has integrity. He's obedient. He does everything that he's supposed to do. He would never bring disgrace to the home or to the village. And compared to his little brother, he is a saint. Go with me to verse 27, the servant's response. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, verse 28, and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And anger sets in. And the firstborn son stands his ground and refuses to budge. Party? I want no part of a party. Keep going. Verse 29, but he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. I want nothing to do with what you're doing right now. Why would I want to be part of that? And this torrent of emotions begins pouring out of him that's been storing up for year after year, and it just tumbles. Look what I've done for you. I've worked like a slave. What do I get? No parties until this ingrate shows up and he publicly shames you and he burns through all your cash and he's sleeping with prostitutes and what do you do? You party with him? And he's really abrupt with his father and he says, look. And this betrays a really disrespectful attitude towards his father. You never gave me. And there's this smoldering discontent that's been brewing within him. The son of yours he can't even bring himself to call his own brother by his name. Won't even recognize him as his brother. And the likeness of the Pharisees is unmistakable. You can't miss it. This firstborn son might as well be saying, you receive sinners and tax collectors and eat with them. Jesus has painted a very clear picture of the Pharisees. See, the firstborn son sees himself as the model son. 
Do you remember the story that Jesus told in Matthew about how a sinner showed up to pray at the temple and how a Pharisee showed up to pray? And in the story, Jesus says that the sinner, when he showed up to pray, got down on his knees and he couldn't even lift his eyes towards heaven. And he said, Father, forgive me, I know I've sinned. But on the opposite side is the Pharisee looking at the sinner and he stands up very proud, looks up to heaven and says, Father, I thank you that you didn't make me like one of those guys. You understand the imagery that's going on here. This Pharisee, in his attitude, cannot see why this father should be so full of joy at the return of a prodigal. Can't understand why would you do that? Well, Jesus helps us to understand by finishing the story this way. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And the word that Jesus uses intentionally here is edai, which means it's necessary. It's essential. The father had to have joy. Joy is the only possible response when the dead come to life, when the lost are found. And the parable ends right there. It's a really abrupt ending. And I'm left saying, wait, I want to know more. How, how did the brother respond to that? What did he do when he heard his father say that? I want you to know I've come to a conclusion in the last couple of weeks that in leaving this ending unresolved, Jesus also did that intentionally. And he did it, I believe, for this reason. He's thrown out a challenge to the church. Unless we are very unusual, unless we are an exception, we can each see ourselves in the older brother. Some of us can see ourselves in the prodigal. Some of us would never stop to think that we might look like a Pharisee. I think Jesus is leaving it open-ended by asking us this question, where do you land on this issue? Jesus put the older brother in the story for this very reason. Like the Pharisee, we are each capable of being critical, even hypercritical, to those who do not live up to our standards, our standards of expectations. That Jesus leaves the older son's reaction open-ended is intentional. It's though he's saying, where do you stand? Where do you land on this issue? So I'm asking myself, where do I land in regards to people who are far from God? Where do you land? Do you have a list of those you despise, you would never begin to pray for? You think they're unreachable? Maybe somebody's hurt you so deeply you're carrying those wounds, and that's what you're stuck with, that wound. Jesus wants to see these individuals through his eyes, they are absolutely reachable. Being far from God is not hard. Being spiritually lost is easy. You don't have to do anything. We're born lost. The Bible says we're born into sin. There's no need to run to a distant land. 
We're all in that distant land when we're born. From a spiritual perspective, it's actually unavoidable. Human nature is flawed at birth. We're born in sin. We are born in the distant land. And if people continue to live apart from God as though they have no regard whatsoever for God, they're going to continue to be lost in that distant land. They'll stay lost. So check the imagery that Jesus is giving His church here. Be smart enough to tell this story, smart enough to know what the church was going to look like 2,000 years later. He knows us. Check the imagery here. The Father condescends from His mansion on high to come down to the street level and run to embrace that beggar coming towards Him and throws His arms open wide and wraps them around Him, the same arms that He allowed to be pinned to a cross. He uses him to wrap up that sinner and kiss him on the neck and say, welcome home. I'm so glad that you're back. All because this son believes. He believes that the father's nature is to be merciful and to be rich in grace and kind. So God has shown us God this morning. God has shown us the image of God as one who is rich in mercy, rich in grace, and great in his love toward us. You want to know more about that? I challenge you. If you're you're new to church, find a Bible and read Ephesians chapter 2, especially verse 10. Do that later today. You watching at home? Read Ephesians 2. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Here's how I want to end. I want to remind you that no matter how sinful no matter what you might have done in the past, no matter how much baggage you're carrying, God is showing us He waits patiently for the return because He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's our God. Let's pray, New Hope. Father, I pray for those who might be listening right now that are feeling indeed distant from You. First and foremost, I want to lift them up to you and ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, if their conscience has been pricked, God, that you would use this opportunity to draw them closer to you. Remind them that you're a forgiving God. You died to forgive us. I pray for my brothers and sisters, especially Father also, that I do life with. God, I pray for the believers in this auditorium and those who are watching from home. And every one of us would model this reality this week. And instead of having a list of those we despise, we have a list of those whom we pray for and we lift up before you and ask you to save or restore a relationship that's broken. God, I pray for this because that's what Jesus modeled for us. I pray for this in his magnificent name, the name of Jesus Christ our King and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.